us. Thank you that within each of your children, you are being, we are being built into a dwelling place of God, a habitation for God. We thank you that you have chosen to live inside us, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would speak through me this morning as we open our Bibles and may the body of Christ here at Bible Chapel be encouraged and built up. Remove me from the equation. Bring glory to yourself through the preaching of the word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Glad to take a seat and get your Bibles or phones or tablets out. For those of you that uh, don't have a Bible, I think there are some in the pews in front. You really can't say it anymore if you have a phone because you can put the Bible on your phone. But nonetheless, we're going to look at this verse this morning, Matthew 7, 21 through 23, as we kind of we're nearing the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version. It says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons. In your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And I want to begin this morning be talking about our obsession with heaven. Or what I call a heavenly obsession. Humanity has a fascination with heaven. The Christian book was written... Um, and read not only by believers, but by unbelievers, in 2004 by Randy Alcorn called, one word, Heaven. Who's read that book or has heard of it? Okay. Yeah. It provided answers to the questions like, what is heaven really going to be like? What will we look like? And what will we do every day? Now, this book struck a chord with people. It sold over a million copies. I think it was on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, Carlisle Murphy wrote an article entitled, Most Americans Believe in Heaven, and then dot, 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 and hell. Uh, the statistics cited confirm our interest in, uh, with heaven. This is what he wrote. It says, it's natural for people to want things to turn out well in the end, both in life and apparently afterwards. He writes that roughly 7 in 10, or 72%, of Americans say they believe in heaven, and they define heaven as a place where people who have led good lives are eternally rewarded. Now this coming from a, a Pew Research Center 2014 religious landscape study. But the survey also found that among religiously affiliated Americans, the belief that there is a heaven is even more widespread with 82% that have a religious background hold the view of of heaven. So you have unbelievers and believers that both share this preoccupation with heaven. But how many believe they will actually go to heaven when they die? 
well, you go back to 2003, a George Barna study, says that nearly two-thirds of Americans believe they will go to heaven. That's 64% of Americans believe that they'll go to heaven. However, in 2020, George Barna did another survey, and it reported a drop. With only 54% of U.S. adults believe that they will get to heaven after they die. However, if you are a believer, your belief remains high. According to an ABC News poll, 85% of believers think they'll personally go there, mainly in spirit. That means that the vast majority of Americans believe in heaven and think they're headed there, and that elbow room won't be a problem because you are a spirit. Of course, there is another side to this story. A majority of people who describe themselves as Christian, 52%, they accept a works-oriented means to God's acceptance. Study also found that huge proportions of people associated with churches whose official doctrine says that eternal salvation comes only through faith, through embracing Jesus Christ as Savior, believe that a person can qualify for heaven by being or doing good. So you basically are good, or if you do good, that's how you get into heaven. Even though their church doctrinal statement says that you get to heaven by faith alone. So people believe in heaven, but they're citing the wrong reasons and how to get there. Now these statistics are corroborated by a book called American Grace, How Religion Divides and Unites Us, co-written by the author David Campbell. He contends that people of faith in America are very tolerant, so much so that most believers also believe that good people, despite their religious affiliation, can go to heaven. This belief, of course, is called what? Universalism. It's a theological doctrine that all people will eventually be saved despite a relationship with Christ. Now, what is particularly troubling is that 83% of evangelical Protestants agreed, and that's 83%, folks, agreed that good people of other religions can go to heaven. So if you're an evangelical Protestant and you believe that someone who's a Hindu or a, a, a Muslim or a, a Buddhist, they're going to go to heaven. 90% of black Protestants also believe good people can go to heaven. Now I find all this, these statistics remarkable. It's a remarkable coincidence, and I say this facetiously with tongue-in-cheek, because it's, these statistics align perfectly with the words our Lord spoke over 2,000 years ago. Look at Matthew 7.22. You're right there in your Bibles. What does it say? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name cast out demons, in your name perform many miracles. In other words, many believed that they should get to heaven. See that? <clears throat> let's break these three verses down this morning. And you may recall that the previous two sermons dealt with false prophets the last two weeks. We talked about false prophets in Matthew 7, 15 to 20. Well, this morning we're going to deal with false professors. Not a professor that's a teacher, but one who professes something. I call them false professors. 
They are simply the bad fruit of the false prophets. I want to begin with a warning, though, that the false professors, they're a religious crowd. They're not openly irreligious people. Tragically, they have been duped into a false sense of security. Do you see that? And they've been duped by the false prophets. Remember I told you they're there at the entrance of the gate, shoving people into what? The wide gate in the easy way, deceiving people. They've been duped into a false sense of security by the false prophets and their false doctrine, thinking they have a golden ticket to heaven, when in fact they're headed straight down the highway to hell. Now, this self-deception that we read in these passages, that one is saved when in fact that he is actually lost, to me is certainly the most frightening of all deceptions. Jesus has just stated that there will be few who enter the small gate and the narrow way. That's Matthew seven thirteen and 14. And now he declares that there are many who are on the broad way that leads to destruction, and that they are deceiving themselves, thinking they are guaranteed entrance into heaven. See that? Now, I want you, if you can, can you imagine such a person's last breath on earth in the first glimpse of their eternal future that is deceived, thinking they're getting to heaven and they're not? I mean, it's a thought that's too terrible to contemplate. And I hope and pray that this very sobering portion of the Sermon on the Mount motivates all of us here at Bible Chapel to, to boldly share the hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that being said, let's analyze these verses. I want to begin by saying this scene. We're going to talk about what I call that day. Look at your verses there again. Jesus says on that day. You see that? He uses the phrase that day. I want you to highlight that, because that's vital for understanding the full impact of his words. What is Jesus referring to when he says, that day? Well, he's referring to what is called the great white throne judgment found in Revelation 20. This is so important for you to get this, I actually put the verse up there for you all to see. So you can go there in your Bibles if you want, but this, it's such a long verse that I have to break it up into two slides or you wouldn't be able to see it. But we're going to read this verse, and it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. I have no idea what that would be like. I can only imagine thinking earth and heaven fleeing away from the presence of God. And no place was found for them. Verse 12, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books of life according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now folks, when a person dies, they go to one of two places. 
heaven, or, or Hades, which is another word for hell. Now in heaven, one is united with Christ in eternal happiness, enjoying everlasting blessedness. That's Philippians 1, 21 and 23. Paul said it's better to be absent from this body because you are then present with the Lord, right? But in Hades or hell, one experiences eternal misery and suffering eternal punishment. Luke 16, 19, 31, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, remember that? Now, everyone who dies before Christ's second coming experiences one of these states or one of these conditions. Happiness or misery. And this is what we call the intermediate state. Folks, it is not the final state for humanity. The final state is revealed on that day. You see? Which Jesus is referencing in Matthew 7, 22. Now, what we just read and what you see up there in the screen is this is a resurrection. It's described in Revelation 20. Everyone stands before the great white throne and is judged. So there are those who have been with Jesus in heavenly bliss, I want you to listen to me on this, who are judged, and those who have been in Hades, enduring punishment, who are judged. And here is what I want you to understand now. You ready? There is a temporary relief for those who have been in Hades or in hell, who have been in agony and torment as they await judgment. You see that? Because where are they now? They're in his presence. Now this helps us understand the phrase, Lord, Lord. Because it's repeated twice, Lord, Lord. Once in Matthew 7.22, you see that? And then in 7.23. And it's an interesting phrase. The first word used, Lord, means master or teacher or possessor. It's a term of dignity, respect, or recognition. And so, obviously, who Jesus is referring to here in Matthew 7, he's talking to unbelievers, and all of a sudden, what are they doing now to Jesus? <laughs> They're recognizing him, giving him respect. You see that? They're now standing before Jesus and showing him respect. Now, the second word for Lord emphasizes Jesus' deity. And all it entails, I mean, he's God. It means his virgin birth, his miraculous life, his substitutionary death, miraculous resurrection, intercession, second coming, all of that. So if you combine the two words, the two Lord, Lords, what they're saying is this. Jesus, this is everybody, particularly unbelievers, we recognize you as our master who possesses all things, and we recognize you as our God. You are the one in possession of all power and authority over all your possession. That's in essence is what those two words, Lord, Lord, means. And who is saying Lord, Lord to them in the context of Matthew 7? The lost, the unbelievers, because they aren't getting in, are they? Many will say, right? There are some that will say it that believe, but they're the few. But many are going to say this. So all of a sudden, they're believers. So there's, there aren't many atheists in hell, is really what I'm trying to get you to say. All of a sudden, they believe. But they, they have this temporary their, their relief from their suffering as they are 
standing before Jesus, their judge. So they're very respectful and orthodox, using the right words that stem from the right attitude. And the fact that they say it twice, listen to this, indicates their strength of devotion to him. It's a fervency, a passion for him. You begin to understand the intensity and the fullness of what Jesus is describing here. And they say, Lord, Lord. But there's more. In verse 22, three times they repeat the phrase what? In your name. You see that? In your name. Three times. This implies that what they claim they did, it was for him. And not for their own selfish purposes. We've been prophesying for you, casting out demons for you, doing miracles for you. It's really an amazing claim that these people are making. These people are using all the right words, they're very respectful, they're very orthodox, they're very fervent, and they're very God-centered. Now, why are these people so zealous for Jesus? Because they've just spent time in judgment and punishment. You see that? For some, the time may have been brief. Maybe it's a few days or months. For some, it may have been years. They've been suffering in hell or decades or centuries or thousands of years. See, this adds to the fervency of, the, of calling him Lord, Lord. But there's more. Now, I'm going to have you do something here to help you understand the fullness of this and get the full impact of this. I want you to close your eyes. Everybody close your eyes. You can keep them closed for a while, but keep them closed. But I want you to picture everyone's eyes closed. In your mind, someone, a friend or neighbor with whom you have been praying for to come to faith in Christ. It could be even a family member, somebody. And perhaps you've invited this person to church where they heard a gospel presentation. Perhaps you've even shared your faith with them once or twice in the course of a conversation. Perhaps this person came to church for a while, got involved in all the church activities, but now they're an infrequent church attender if they come at all. Now I want you, with your eyes closed, to picture in your mind that this person has died. And after their last breath on earth, they are ushered into a state of intense pain and suffering unlike anything they have ever experienced during their time on earth. Now I want you to picture in your mind, with your eyes closed, that you've died. And you've taken your last breath on earth. And now experiencing such peace and joy and rest in the presence of Jesus that it is unlike anything you have ever experienced during your time on earth. Now I want you to picture in your mind that you and your friend have just been resurrected. And are in line waiting to be judged by Jesus before the great white throne. And your friend is standing right in front of you. Now to your left is a tall man with an awkward build that you recognize as Abraham Lincoln. And to your right is a man of short stature with his hand on his chest that you recognize as Napoleon Bonaparte. And behind you is somebody that you don't know, 
but it's obvious they're from some remote jungle in Africa. And suddenly you remember the words of Jesus, the great and the small standing before the throne. With your eyes closed, I want you to picture now that you and your friends strike up a conversation centered on where you have been and where this person has been since your deaths. Everyone keep their eyes closed. Now, as you describe the extreme happiness and joy of heaven, the look of envy on your friend's face slowly disappears and tears start streaming down your friend's face. Your friend then describes the absolute horrors of hell that they have endured, the inner anguish, the physical pain, the constant screams of agony, the suffocating darkness, the overwhelming loneliness. Your friend looks at you and says, I hope I was sent to hell by mistake. Or maybe I was assigned to hell temporarily. And now I can make my argument before Jesus himself to convince him I should be in heaven. After all, do you remember when I went to church with you and and heard the gospel and I walked down the aisle and I prayed to receive Christ and was faithful for a while to him? It's got to be something, right? I listened to sermons and fellowshiped and helped out with vacation Bible school and even sang in the worship team. I have hope in the mercy of Jesus. Everybody standing before Jesus at the great white throne judgment has hope. And hope can be a dangerous thing, as your friend is about to find out. And you watch your unbelieving friend stand before Jesus and give an account of their deeds and make their argument with their claims to be allowed into heaven, claiming, I walked down the aisle, I prayed the prayer, I served in church for a while. And you can see your friend clinging to the last ounce of hope they have, only to have that hope shattered as the opened books are searched thoroughly, and your friend's name is not found in them. And your friend cries out again for Jesus to take another look. Perhaps he glanced over their name and he missed them. Jesus looks down on your friend and says the one thing your friend does not want to hear. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And you watch as your friend is now screaming out to Jesus for mercy and is cast into the lake of fire. You can open your eyes. There are no more devastating words, I believe, in all the human experience than the words your friend just heard. That's the scene that Jesus is is picturing and is painting for us. I mean, no amount of respect, orthodoxy, or fervency in their words, Lord, Lord, will alter their eternal destiny. Well, why? Well, because he said it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. We want to go there, right? Two-thirds of people want to go there, right? You see, that's the picture our Lord is painting for us in Matthew 7, 21, 23. See, it's a very graphic and a very sobering picture. 
Well, who are these people Jesus is referring to in Matthew 7.22? They are false professors. Let's talk about them for a moment here. The false professors. Look at the verse. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and your name cast out demons, and your name perform any miracles? I mean, that sounds pretty impressive, doesn't it? How many of you can make that claim? But upon closer examination, we find that it just comes up short. For example, you'll find in the Bible that false prophets prophesy words that come to pass. Remember Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3? God says this through Moses. If a prophet or a dreamer dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign of the wonder comes true. See that? Concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer or dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So there are false prophets. What they say will come true. We find in, in the New Testament, Acts 19, there were Jewish exorcists. Remember the sons of Sceva? History tells us they made their living casting out demons. Even the apostle Judas who betrayed Jesus, was given power and authority to cast out demons. Jesus said this to all the apostles, including Judas. He summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him, and he appointed 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. And the implication is that Judas was very successful in what he was doing with this power. How do we know that? Well, remember the night our Lord was betrayed? The disciples know who it was. No. They know Judas was the one who was going to betray him. I mean, his life looked good on the outside. See, but the inside, he was rotten. The wise men and sorcerers and magicians of Egypt performed miracles. Exodus 7, verse 10, 12. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and thus they did, just as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts, for each one threw down his staff, and they turned into serpents. They're doing these miracles. They're doing these miraculous events. Jesus himself said that this would happen. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Matthew 24, 24. To the false prophets of which Moses speaks of in Deuteronomy, the Jewish exorcists and the apostle Judas both cast out demons, and the wise men and the sorcerers and the magicians of Egypt who performed miracles, none of them were believers. They did not enter by the narrow gate and travel down the hard way that leads to the kingdom. You see, from these verses we learn that not all miracles are of divine origin and not all miracle workers are divinely accredited. Now, you want to know what these people should, be, should have said to Jesus on that day? I mean, Jesus tells us very simple in a parable. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but beating his breast, saying What? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than 
the other. I mean, these people should have fallen to their knees and proclaimed their overwhelming spiritual bankruptcy before Jesus. They should have wept over their sin in his presence. They should have humbled themselves before a merciful Savior. They should have cried out for his righteousness and abandoned their own self-righteousness. Then they should have pointed to a changed life of mercy, purity, peacemaking, and joyfully enduring persecution. See, all these people that Jesus is talking about, they're religious people. The point is, they were deceived. Deceived by the false prophets and self-deceived. And so that leaves us, I think, with a very obviously question. Okay, what must one do to enter his kingdom? Because verse Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. Do you want to know what it means to profess Christ? Simple. You do the will of the Father. What he's talking about is an obedient life that comes from a transformed heart. I mean, your life should prove your faith. Because that's exactly what Peter taught, right? Remember this? Remember this verse? For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith, your belief in Jesus as your Savior, with virtue. Virtue is excellent character. Your personal character, you're living out a person of integrity. That's who you are. James says the same. Remember this? Faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. You can profess Christ all you want, but it means absolutely nothing if your life doesn't back it up. That faith is dead, and that profession of Christ is valueless. So what's the will of the Father? Well, it's simple. It's to know him. Look at verse 23. And then I will declare to them what? Look at this, Matthew 7, 23. Then I will declare to them what? I never knew you. These people did not make it to heaven, not because they weren't religious, but because they didn't know Jesus. And Paul explains the exceptional value of knowing Christ. Maybe now we're beginning to get this, but look at this. More than that, he counts all things to be lost. They're just rubbish in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, I count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. If I know him, I am in the kingdom. It's that simple. Well, what does it mean to know him? Because it's of incalculable worth. What knowing him means is an intimate personal relationship. The Greek word for know is gnosko. I've talked about this ad nauseum with you guys. You know this. It's an experiential knowledge. It's not knowing about someone, but knowing them personally. It's the same word used of a husband knowing his wife physically. It implies intimacy. And Jesus is saying to these false professors, I never had any intimate relationship with you. I mean, you were around my house, my church, kind of on the fringes. 
and you did a lot, but I never had any real intimacy with you. I, I don't know you. And so he says, in essence, leave. <laughs> Get out of my house. Get out of my presence. Depart from me. Because you see, he had to say that when you think about it. Well, why? Because you practice lawlessness. Now that's a, a, a term that's in the present participle. It's in the present tense. It means that that was their habit. That was their lifestyle. To continue in lawlessness. So instead of doing the will of my father, you always work lawlessness. Folks, we must be consumed with doing the will of God and intimately knowing him. This is why the very first sermon I think I, I preached to you guys, one of the first ones was that the, the value of knowing him. It's a personal, intimate relationship with him. If you don't know him that way, you are not in. And you can go to church all your life, and you can serve all the, do all the things and never know him. The point of, the, of this parable is the, the, the self-deception of these false professors. I believe as Jesus is saying to us that you can have God's name in your mouths, but rebellion in your hearts. And that makes your words empty. English is a strange language, right? There's no butter and buttermilk, no egg and eggplant, there's no ham and hamburger, and no apple and pineapple. Quicksand works very slowly, and boxing rings are square. Inconsistencies of language are not significant. Inconsistencies in life are significant. Those who profess to be Christ followers must follow Christ. Their words and deeds must be consistent with what they profess. So if you were to compile a list, for example, of the most recognized gangsters in history, your list would include the names of, for example, Al Capone, right? Everybody knows who Al Capone is, or John Gotti, or Machine Gun Kelly, or Frank Costello, and even we know who, some of you may have heard of Mickey Cohen. Myers Harris Mickey Cohen was an American gangster based in Los Angeles and boss of the Cohen crime family. At the height of his career, I did not know this, but Cohen was persuaded to attend a Billy Graham evangelistic service, which he showed interest in Christianity. Now, hearing of this and realizing what a great influence a converted Mickey Cohen could have for Christ, many prominent Christian leaders began visiting him in an effort to convince him to accept Christ, including Billy Graham himself. Late one night, after repeatedly being encouraged to open the door of his life on the basis of Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. Cohen did so and made a profession of faith in Christ. And hopes ran high among believers and acquaintances. But with the passing of time, no one could detect any change in Cohen's life. Finally, they confronted him with the fact that being a Christian meant he would have to give up his friends, his profession, in his lawless ways. And the logic of his response was, was this. There are Christian football players, Christian cowboys, Christian politicians. Why not a Christian gangster? That's what he said. 
Salvation is not addition, adding Jesus Christ to your life. It is transformation, allowing Jesus to change your life through, and it only, it just only happens through an intimate personal relationship with him. Ron, that was the time to say amen. All right? And so it's a simple application point. You need to prove your faith. Prove it. Not only say it, but do it. Because on that day, and that is a, a very sobering in, in day, it will, it will not be a day of rejoicing. I think that after that day, it will be rejoicing. But on that day, there will be many who will be deceived. And unfortunately, I think we will be there to, to experience it. And so we don't want that to happen to people. Right? That'd be another time for you to say amen, Ron. Okay. So now what, what can you do as well as prove it by your life? Well, you can also prove it by inviting others here. And you have an opportunity to do that in the 31st. Invite people. They, they'll hear the gospel very clearly presented to them. Even those who think that they're believers, they may not be. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time this morning, and we thank you for your words to us. These are hard words, I acknowledge, but they're necessary words. We want to be people that aren't the false professors of you, but are true confessors of you. That our lifestyle shows it, that we are different, that, that we desire the things that you desire. We think like you think. We feel what you feel. We are so like you that we're just different. Because that's what you call us to be, different. We recognize our spiritual bankruptcy. We weep over our sin. We're humble before you. We hunger for our righteousness that's not our own. We are merciful and peaceful and pure. The opposite of the world. And Lord, through us, what we do, may it bring glory to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a great Sunday. We'll just close with this. Enjoy your day. God bless you. And go improve your faith. Amen.